let's say you're hungry, right? You're, you have an emptiness in your belly. So what do you do, right? You eat and you eat and you eat and you eat. At a certain point, the problem is not that your belly is empty. The problem is that your belly is full. So I think it's like this with solutions as well. We find a good solution. It helps us in that moment, but it holds the seeds of the next, I'm gonna say opportunity to learn something about life and ourselves. I'm Chris Halsworth, a grain originator and accountant living in Pocahontas, Iowa, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, I'm glad you're here. Today, we sit down with acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, Michael Max. If you had known me a few years ago, you probably would have guessed that during this interview, I would have been going hard in the paint on Michael. Like, why would you do Chinese medicine? Why not just do regular medicine? What is the purpose of doing acupuncture when we have all this scientific research that says it does nothing? But I have to say, and you'll hear me describe in the interview, that over time, I've opened my mind to a lot of things. Things that I thought were certain in the way that data worked or how medicine was or just the value of it being scientifically based, I'm more open to understanding the world from different vantage points, not least of which because of how much I've seen it impact my own life. Now, I've never done acupuncture and I don't currently attend to Chinese medicine, but by having Michael in here, we have a really interesting conversation about what is it? Why do people do it? What's going on with the mainstream medical system that people want to try these alternative systems? We're going to get to the interview with Michael in just a moment. But first, the holidays are coming up and it feels weird to be doing a conversation about Christmas. But if you would like to be able to have your loved ones interviewed, telling about their life stories, about the things that went on in their lives then we need to get that scheduled, and if you want to be able to watch it with them at the Christmas holiday season. We have spent the fall doing some amazing interviews, including going to a farmhouse and waiting for people to hop off the combine during harvest and record their legacy interviews so we could do an entire family tree. If you're interested in having me sit down with your loved ones, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with Michael Max. Michael Max, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vance. Why is it called Chinese medicine and not just medicine? Oh, that's a great question. There are people who would say that there is just medicine. Whatever medicine, whether it's a witch doctor in Africa or surgeon in the United States or someone doing herbal medicine in Yunnan, China, medicine's just medicine. Medicine is a way of helping people through the problems that they have. There are all kinds of different flavors, all kinds of different traditions, methods, techniques. So really, maybe there is just one medicine, but it comes from different places. It has different roots, different ways of looking at the body, different ways of looking at the mind, the spirit. So Chinese medicine, call it that because the medicine that I practice, which is acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine, that's where it came from. That's... That's where it's rooted in. It's all over the world at this point. When people say herbal medicine, you kind of think like watered down medicine. It's not like the molecule I'm getting in my, <laughs> you know, Celebrex or my uh -huh. you know, statin or whatever that is. Yeah. Is that right? Is it watered down medicine? Uh, if you've tasted it, you'll know it's not watered down. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> Tell me more. It, it it's pot. Okay, so a couple things. Number one, it tastes awful. So Chinese herbal medicine, it's not one herb. Like here in the West, oh, I can't sleep, so maybe someone take drink some chamomile tea, or uh, in the morning to get going, they'll have some coffee. Right, using one thing to get to get a certain effect. Chinese medicine is more like a, a string quartet or a small orchestra, where different herbs are combined together because you're looking to do something synergistically. When people are sick or, or something's not working well, it's not just one thing. There's usually some kind of systemic process going on, and so Chinese herbal medicine attempts to address. The various things that hold an illness into place, and so you use different kinds of herbs all together. There is a, a thing that they say in in China these days that Western medicine is fast and Chinese medicine is slow. I think this refers back to your your piece about is it, is it actually watered down medicine? At this point, a lot of times Chinese medicine is used for chronic issues, and chronic issues aren't going to change quickly, right? If they could have changed quickly, they already would have. By the time someone ends up in the office of an herbalist or an acupuncturist, something's, you know, it's really in place. So it takes time to unwind it and change it. So plenty of people use Chinese herbal medicine for these chronic issues. That being said... It's very good for colds and flus and things like that. It's very good for digestive upset, food poisoning. So it can work extremely quickly as well in the right hands, applied at the right time. Tell me more. What, is, what does that mean, that they need to be applied at the right time? Well, if you're getting sick, the time to take the medicine is as you're getting sick. Not when you're laying in bed with a big fever and body aches and you can't move because you're so exhausted. You want to take that medicine two days before that point and then rest. So when you're describing herbal medicine as a string quartet, mm. how does, how does you know, I think of a regular Western doctor. They think, hey, we've got these blood readings. They're out of order. We're going to give you a statin to try and bring that, that down or we're going to try and bring this number up. Is that the way that your string quartet works? No. No. So let's go with the blood readings of high cholesterol, since you bring it up. You need to look at how and why is the cholesterol high. Right? Different people have different constitutions. So you can see this walking down the street. Some people will be kind of skinny. If you actually check their skin out, it's probably kind of dry. There's other people more corpulent. They often have more moist skin, although sometimes there'll be people who carry quite a bit of weight. They also have dry skin. These are different kinds of people. Their bodies work in different kinds of ways. So the people that are very corpulent, they've got more fluid in their system. They often have a fluid issue. We see this in Western medicine, especially with high blood pressure, where they'll give people diuretics to get the fluid out of their system. I'll look at a situation like that and think, okay, how can I help their body metabolize fluids better so that, so that their blood pressure will go down or maybe their cholesterol will change because there's a better balance of 
all the various viscera in the body. And what do you have at your disposal to make that happen? I use these um, granulated Chinese herbs. They come from Taiwan. They're herbal, they're single herbs. And then there's also herbal formulas that have been cooked down into almost like an instant coffee kind of thing. You just put in some water, stir it up, and mix it. Much easier to take than the traditional method where you send somebody home with a bag of some bark and some twigs and some leaves and, you know, maybe some roots, a couple of flowers, right, that these things are. And then you have to cook it up for like two hours into uh, kind of a thick soup. Yeah, I think when you're describing this, like a, a Westerner thinks of this and they think witch doctor or, you know, flim flam, right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem like this should work in our, in our way of understanding the, yeah. the body. Um, as Westerners, we should be skeptical. We should absolutely be skeptical. I mean, we didn't grow up with this. It's not part of our culture. It's not been part of our medical system. It's completely foreign to us as Westerners. So it should seem weird. And I think people are rightly skeptical. I'm, I'm worried when people aren't. Now, you go over to Asia, where when you're a little kid, if you've got a, a stomach ache or you've got food poisoning, right, your mom or your grandma or your aunt is going to, they may not know medicine like a doctor would, but there's like a folk aspect to it. So they'll be like, okay, I'm making you a soup and I'm going to put these things in it because that's going to help. And, and you grow up with it. Like we grew up with chicken soup here. They grow up over there with their own version, except it's got some herbs in it. So talk about these herbs. What, what are they? Do you, you, you have like um, a wall of all these granulated herbs at your I store? do. Yeah, I do. Um, the clinic that I used to have in Seattle, I had jars of the herbs because I would, I, I just used the raw herbs. Um, that's a little bit heavier of a lift here in the St. Louis area. Uh, I found in, in the time that I was in Taiwan that the herbal, the, the granulated herbs are strong enough. They're potent enough to get the results that I'm looking for and they're easy to take. Why have herbs and things not been turned into just regular medicine? Why why isn't Pfizer and Bayer and all of these companies just turning these herbal medicines into things you could pop? It's a great question. I think they're attempting it. The thing is, with pharmaceutical medicine, you're usually looking for a molecule or you're looking for one thing that's going to make a specific change and some specific biochemical in order to be able to even get it through the FDA, right? of course. you have to know exactly what that molecule is and yeah. you and have how to it think works you know how it works. That's and, right. Yeah, okay. We're dealing with so many different constituents inside of a Chinese medicine formula. Good luck figuring out which one it is. My suspicion is it's not just one thing. It's a number of things that are working, again, in consort together. I don't think we have the capacity to figure that out. I mean, maybe AI will help us somewhere down the road, but that, that's a tough one to figure out. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, in the West, we definitely have this illusion of figuring things out. I mean, I can remember, it's not that long ago, where people would say, a calorie is a calorie is a calorie, right? And, and like nutritionists, and I've been to nutrition conferences, and mm -hmm. they basically lay it out like, we understand 
everything. It's proteins, carbs, and fats, and we can break it down this way. But if that were true, then we could hand somebody like, here, eat this, and you will be fit and healthy, and, and it'll all work. But it doesn't. It breaks down. And I think that oftentimes, uh, looking at nutrition as like mm. a one-to-one -one or highly rationalist model is the same thing as trying to understand the economy and being like, ah, I know this causes this, one this thing. and this is right. exactly right. Complex interactive systems. I don't think we'll ever completely understand that. It's like it's like weather systems or economic systems, like you just mentioned, economic systems. These these are very complex, multi inputs. I think our human mind likes to try to simplify and understand things, and and where we can, we like to. And sometimes, a simple idea contains a complexity behind it, like a. Um, like a fable or a, I'm trying to think, remember what we say in English. I can remember it in Chinese. I can remember it in English all of a sudden. But like a, like a little phrase that means something. Oh, an idiom or something. An idiom. Yeah. Thank you. It could be a few words, but like the idea behind that few words is profound. But all you need is those few words. So I think we often like to simplify because we think we understand it. Or maybe it, it seems more graspable. Let's go back to the thing about nutrition. A calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Yes, and the way fat is metabolized is different than how a carbohydrate is metabolized, is different than how a protein is metabolized. And let's talk about the digestive system of the person doing the metabolizing. So it, it's not just the calorie. It's what kind and then what's happening within the person. And even it's something as simple as what order. You know, I started looking into blood sugar, right? And yeah. diabetics have figured Fascinating, out... Fascinating, isn't it? I take a little bit of vinegar, and I can eat a carbohydrate, and my blood sugar doesn't spike as much, and therefore I can do... I'm eating the exact same foods, but I can control my blood sugar. So there, that therein lies the why the calories a calorie is mm. a calorie is misleading. I mean, certainly maybe that's what it takes to move whatever it is, one gallon of water one degree centigrade or whatever sure. the calorie equals yeah. but in the body once you start having mm -hmm. the complex system it's so funny because there was such a long period of my life where i was so certain we were just on the edge of knowing <laughs> basically everything uh -huh. and then the older you get the more you're like i don't i have no idea oh. do, you, do you have some good ideas on how to fix this problem because i don't know how to fix this problem uh, you know I, I think there is something about aging and recognizing that this is more complex than I imagined. Yeah, I think when you're young, you need things to be simple because it's the only way you can grasp onto this entirely complex world. And so you overly simplify things. But as you get older, you're like, it doesn't, it only helped me for a little while up to mm. a certain point to oversimplify things. It kind of runs you into problems. I mean, have you noticed this? That whatever solution, no, let me, let me, let me go a different step. Whatever problem you're facing today, the problem you're facing is probably something that was previously a solution at another point in your life. Oh. It was a good solution. It was a workable solution. It got you from here to there and down the road. But it seems to me that almost any solution over time can become the problem. Becomes the problem. This, I mean, this gets into Chinese philosophy, the whole idea of yin and yang. You've heard of this. Certainly. Tell me everything. Go on. Well, oh, God. I, everything. 
yin and yang is this very basic concept that there is a duality that we live within. It, things are dark or things are light. Things are hot or things are cold. Things are ordered or they're chaotic. They could be ordered or chaotic. Um, they could be wet or they could be dry. I mean, you look anywhere in life and you're going to run into the duality. There's your yin and yang. There's this idea with yin and yang that as you add more yin to something, it eventually will become yang. Which, you know, it's it's kind of like in when I was first studying Chinese medicine. You know, you look at that taiji, that yin-yang symbol. And, and you can see that that there's these two like fish swimming together. But when you put motion to it, the idea is it's not just an idea. Let me give you a very simple example. Let's say you're hungry. Right? You're, you have an emptiness in your belly. So what do you do? Especially if it's Thanksgiving, right? You eat and you eat and you eat and you eat. At a certain problem, at a certain point, the problem is not that your belly is empty. The problem is that your belly is full. Now you need to relax and digest and let your belly empty. So I think it's like this with solutions as well. We find a good solution. It helps us in that moment, but it holds the seeds of the next, I'm going to say, opportunity to learn something about life and ourselves. Yeah, that's probably correct, the opportunity part of that, because yeah. it's that that's exactly right about the when you think you have everything figured out. I remember before I had kids... I was like, oh, I've figured out the exact diet that works, right? I can eat this much protein. I can eat it in this regimen. Mm. But if I tried to keep that system going mm. while raising children, first of all, they there's no chance they would eat that, at that no. way. And, like, it just wasn't going to work. So you had to come up with a new problem. Whereas a couple of years ago, I was like, solve the problem. It's yeah. over. I've got it for the yeah. rest of my life. All solutions are temporary. And that hurts. Right? Uh, well, it can. It hurts because you want <laughs> you want to find solutions that work for good. For sure. <laughs> I mean, there is that tendency. Absolutely, it helps when you realize that they're all temporary. It's good. It's got a shelf life. It'll be good for a while. Yeah, and change is the only thing that uh, that we know for certain is always going to be there. Pretty much. But it's crazy because I was actually just thinking about this this morning. Change takes so long in natural systems that it seems almost like it's not happening, right? You look out on the trees and you're like, hey, it's it's the end of September. Shouldn't these leaves all be changed? This should all be different colors. It's mm -hmm. not happening. And then you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, all the leaves have changed. They're all – but it, it happens slowly and then all of a sudden. It's hard to notice things moving slowly. Um. And yeah, by and large, nature is... Well, let me just shift this for a moment. Had a patient the other day. Her phone wasn't working. Something was going on. She's like, ah, this phone, it never works. And it's like, actually, no, that's not true. That phone works 99.999% of the time. The only time you notice it not working is when it isn't. Because it's always working. So yeah, our solutions are working. Nature's working. Whatever is going along well, it's very difficult to notice. This is probably why a gratitude practice of some sort can be useful, so that you, you can notice the absolute miracle of what's actually going well. Let me ask you a question. What does perfect health feel like? 
Ooh. You certainly would have energy. You would you would be uh, rested, and uh, you would be lacking pain. Um, and uh, that probably those two things: lacking okay. pain and so there. There's some energy. aspects. Perfect health feels like nothing at all. Okay. You need to move and do something. You move and do it. It's time to sleep. Your body knows how to go into rest. It's time to get up. Your body knows how to how to wake itself up and be alert. Perfect health feels like nothing. You just live your life. The only time people have a health issue is when they notice something is happening. My knees hurt. My head hurts. Menstrual cycle is off. I mean, whatever it is, digestion's not good. It's only when we notice something that the health isn't in optimal shape. So as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, how is your health? Well, I'm 66 years old, so I've got some wear and tear on the system, right? There's issues, some of which are age-related. There are some issues because of how I eat, and I like to eat that way. Could I change and make it different? I probably could. But, you know, I get a certain enjoyment from living life the way that I do. So occasional heartburn, I can live with it. Because that chicken parmesan was really good. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of trade-offs. Yeah. So you also practice acupuncture, which brings in concepts like meridians and and energy flow. What is the step one to have a skeptical Westerner um, approach acupuncture? Mm. Step one. Um. Well, if it's something that you would like to use or attempt to use for some kind of health issue that you have, I would say take that that skepticism along with an open mind and find a practitioner that ideally somebody recommends to you or, I don't know, it's the Internet age. Maybe you find a, a website and you like how they present themselves. Right, there's that too. There's a lot of ways to find a healthcare. However, you find a healthcare practitioner for your teeth or your hands or whatever, you know, do the same thing for an acupuncturist. Take your skepticism with you. Don't don't go in believing that this is going to help me. Go in with, I wonder how this might be helpful to me. And then see what the acupuncturist has to say. Some things can be treated pretty well quickly. Some things take time. Sometimes things resolve extremely fast, but it's rare. But often enough that you'll hear stories, people tell stories of, oh, I went to this acupuncturist and I stopped smoking immediately. Or I went to this acupuncturist and I was, you know, pregnant on the next cycle or something like that. And sometimes the results are really fast. But usually it's going to take some time because what Whatever issue that you've gotten yourself into, it's taken time to get there. It's probably going to take some time to get to get out of it. So the idea of I'm going to do this once and see what it does, probably not enough. You want to give it like three to five treatments. So what's going on when you're putting needles into somebody? What What is the oh. practitioner trying to do? That is... Uh, 
That's a $65,000 question, isn't it? I hope this is not going to sound like a cop-out. You press me if it sounds like one. Okay. Okay? It's hard to explain from a Western point of view because acupuncture is a part of Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine is a part of Chinese philosophy and a, and a whole other way of looking at the world that doesn't quite seem, see the same divisions between mind and body as, as we do in the Western world. So it's hard to explain from a Western biochemical, physiological, neurological point of view. We can talk about traces of what acupuncture does. You can see how things work on an MRI or you can see, um, what is it, uh, electrical changes on the surface of the skin. I mean, there's different things that you can measure with Western technology to see what acupuncture is doing. I'm gonna say those are traces. Those are signals of what acupuncture is doing. There's a phrase in Chinese medicine about acupuncture. Mostly what it does is it moves and it transforms the qi. Qi, which is basically impossible to uh, translate into English. People call it energy. That's like saying water's wet. It, it's it's not it's not a great translation. My sense of this is that it helps the body fall into I'm going to say a greater sense of coherence with itself. It helps people to reach a place of quietude where things shift. I'm not explaining it very well. I've been at this for 25 years. This is the hardest question. Well, so maybe as you're standing over somebody that mm. has a, an issue, pick, pick whatever issue that mm. you think acupuncture does well, what is it that you're focused on? Where, what are you trying to do with those needles? And what are you... What is, the, what is the way in which you're trying to bring that mind and body back in concert with itself? Okay. That's helpful. That's a helpful question. So these meridians, and, and people have seen the charts with the lines and the, and the points. You've probably seen them too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's part of the popular culture at this point. Those meridians are attached to organs. The organs in Chinese medicine have... Roughly the function that you would see in Western medicine, but they also have more function than that. So my job as an acupuncturist is to take whatever thing someone has going on and try to understand it through how the organs with their different functions are interacting with each other, where they're working together in harmony, where they might be in some kind of conflict, where one might be strong and the other one might be weak, and therefore things aren't working in the right homeostatic way. So I'm looking for where there's literally strength and weakness, where things are flowing well and where things are blocked, based on the organs, based on the meridians, and then 
choosing points on those meridians that will have an influence to make a change and bring the body into a greater state of balance and coherence. When things are working well together, they just work. Let me give you an example. We have a storm come through. It knocks out power. What's happening with the power grid? Well, wherever you are, you don't have it. Now what? Well, we don't have air conditioning. God, I hope it comes on in the next few hours. We're going to lose all the food in our refrigerator. Similar thing with acupuncture. If there's electricity, literally electricity knocked out somewhere, my job is to reestablish that flow. And then things take care of themselves. Again, we're looking at an integrated, complex system. So if, you, if there's one part of this system where there's a particular blockage and you take that away, everything else just works. It's like truing the wheel on a bicycle. If the wheel's a little bit off, kathong, 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 kathong. But if you true that wheel so that it spins on its center properly, you can just ride your bicycle. Is that helpful? Yes. As you're learning this, how does one begin to get a sense for where those meridians are and if you are allowing that, that connection to occur? Mm. Well, some of it is, is very didactic, and you get it out of books, and you read about the pathways of where they start and where they go and where they end in the different points, the influence of the different points. There's all that. I mean, you've got to learn, you've got to learn the map, so to speak. And then, you know, the ancient Chinese, they didn't have MRIs and blood pressure machines and you know, all the fantastic tools that we have. I mean, our modern medical system is, you know, especially with its diagnostics, is nothing short of miraculous. You put someone in MRI and see what their liver is doing, right, or what their lungs look like, or if they have adhesions or lesions on their, you know, nerves or something. Chinese didn't have that, so they would look at external representations of the body, and use that as diagnostics. And so there's a couple things in particular that we would look at. And one is like the skin, the color of the skin, the luster of the skin. Some people have like a red cast to their face. Some people have a green cast to their face. Those mean different things. The tongue, and, and this is fascinating, the tongue changes dramatically and is, is a reflection of a person's internal environment. So... A normal tongue is pink, has a thin white coating. That basically means unremarkable, like nothing to see here, move along. But some people have purple tongues. And some people have red tongues. And some people have red tongues with more red at the tip and like little, little palpules standing up. And they're also red. And some people have no coating on their tongue. Some people have thick yellow coatings on their tongue. And all of those are a kind of indication of how the internal environment is out of balance. We match that up with the pulse. And I know this is going to sound wacky. 
I'm with you so far. You don't have to worry about this. <laughs> I'm thinking of our listeners out here. Well, they're all sitting there wondering, what color is my tongue, and should I go look in the mirror? And if they're driving down the road, they're probably looking in their rear view while... Yeah, don't do it while you're tongue. driving. <laughs> but do look at it when you get home. And then maybe look at your spouse's tongue, or look at your child's tongue, or look at, a, at the tongue of a friend. And, and just look for the differences. I'm not going to go into what they all mean right now, because that's that's beyond the the scope of what we're doing here, but look and you will start noticing differences. I, I think that's the key point. You ask how I learn it. You look and you start to notice differences. So you can notice differences in the tongue, differences in the skin, differences in the pulse. And I'm not talking about number of beats. I'm not talking about quantity. I'm talking about quality. Is it fast or slow in relation to their breath? Is it thin, like it just wants to disappear, you can barely find it, or does it feel like a piano string under your fingers? There's all these different ways that once you put your hand on a person's radial pulse, you'll start to notice things. And these give an acupuncturist a clue as to where there's a blockage, where there's too much of something, maybe too much fluid in the body, or where there's not enough of something. And then you start looking at the relationships. Oh, this organ helps that organ, and this organ's weak, so that organ's weak also. Strengthen this weak organ over here by helping out the one that nourishes that organ. So there's a whole set of relationships. And, and you begin to tune your senses and your palpation and your eyes to those kinds of things. I'm very drawn to this idea of... Um noticing things and mm. patterns right mm. and i and i think like that's something that gets stripped out when you're like all right we're just going to look at this one value or we're going to look at this blood panel and we're going to look at it from this snapshot mm -hmm. because uh, i mean everything is interconnected and you can take that to like some absurdist degree but particularly with your health being able to observe uh you know i've seen it my wife is a physical therapist and mm. she practices a very specific kind called movement systems integration mm -hmm. And you begin to realize like, oh, that ankle pain is connected with your, the way you're sitting during the day or the way that your, your glutes are working or, you know, something that you might think has nothing at all to do with how, how are your, your toes splayed inside of your shoes yes. is impacting yes. your ankle. But we, we don't practice this in, in the Western world. We're very much more one-to-one, -one, let's find the one mode of action and the idea of having a practitioner look at you mm -hmm. you know just just the very act of having somebody look at you is different than most of our medical system so i would say that those diagnostic exams are kind of a way of looking it's one way of looking and you're right it's a snapshot snapshots can be very very helpful but there's also a movie the work that your wife does that's more like a movie the work your wife does I mean, to me, that, that totally rhymes with what I do. People come in, they got sciatica, their hip hurts. And the pain goes down the back of their leg. Not the side of their leg, but the back of their leg. As an acupuncturist, and maybe for your wife too, that might mean something. Mm. Sciatica going down the side means one thing. Sciatica going down the back, that means something else. And yeah, the way you treat the hip might be by getting the ankle to work better. And then the platform is more stable.
and you're not torquing certain muscles, tightening up certain tendons, and so the glutes can relax. It's a very Chinese, it's very, not Chinese medicine, it's very acupuncture, well, Chinese, acupuncture is Chinese medicine. It's a very Chinese medicine acupuncture idea. You mentioned that uh, herbal medicine, acupuncture are integrated with Chinese philosophy. Mm. Tell me more about this, this integration and the philosophy you're learning along the way. I'm, you know, I can recommend some guests for you that could talk about that more. I, I know in a very cursory way that it's, that it's integrated, but look, there are people that study Chinese philosophy and Taoism and, and things of that nature, and they could speak more to it. I'm more of like a practical applications guy, so I, I know that the philosophy is a piece of it, but I'm no expert on the philosophy. One of the things that uh, rocked my world in the last uh, probably year, about a year ago, mm. was my wife. Uh, she is always testing the the limits of like what does she know and kind of what was she taught. So so she pushes into areas that I'm I will roll my eyes about. Uh-huh. And then, but she's like, wow, you know, my patients are using it with another practitioner. Why wouldn't I learn about how this works? Right. And the one that rocked my world mm. was cupping. This yes. was one where I was like, this I've I've heard from everybody I know when Michael Phelps was doing it, they were like mocking him about it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I watched a video with her about like a different way of looking at the the way your body works, and it was basically describing that it's pulling your the different layers of tissue apart from one another and allowing them to glide more cleanly. So my wife ends up taking a class. We end up doing cupping. She does something on my back. It was unbelievable. I, yes. I was shocking yes. how much it solved my back problem. And then we did it so much, I started to feel like I was getting car sick. And that's because the toxins. Be, well, they, you can also overtreat people. Yeah. So, so here's something to consider. Um, I mean, I think one of the most profound books that we read to our children is Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I really do, because when it comes to treatment, and it sounds like what might have happened for you, I mean, we'll talk about toxins in a second, but what can happen when people get too much treatment, it's more of a dose than their body can handle in that moment, and then it's not helpful, right? Remember we talked about yin turning into yang? So like too much of a good thing is not a good thing. Well, that was exactly it's too much. Because I was like, now let's do my legs. Now let's do my arm. Now and then and then you start to be like, whoa, so this is too much. Now yeah. I still love it, but I do it as a dose as opposed to a let, yeah. let's. It's not it's not massage therapy where you're like, oh, let's do an hour of it. It's like a much smaller dose. Yeah, dosing is important. As a friend of mine likes to say, more is not gooder. Yeah, right. Um, the cupping is really cool. Because it, it does it, it restructures the tissues a bit, and it's doing it under the influence of a vacuum, right? So you can do a lot of good work by pushing into tissue and moving things around, right? That's what massage basically does. Chiro- I don't actually, I don't, chiropractors work a lot with bones, but I think they work with muscle as well. You can do a lot by pushing, but when you allow the tissues to float and you create more space, between the cells, something really interesting happens, especially in areas of stagnation. You probably had some uh, marks show up on your back where she did it, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what 
and some people call it a bruise, but it doesn't heal like a bruise. It's actually not a bruise. It's, it's pulling stagnant blood out of the tissue because the vacuum helps all the, all the cells, all the fibers in your muscles, they expand a little bit. And so it brings new blood and fluid into that area, and then it pulls out any old stagnant blood and fluid. And that's what you're seeing come up to the surface where the body then metabolizes it away. There's something very pleasant about having your tissue expanded. It's, it's a kind of weightlessness. You, know, you can push on a knot in your back, or you can just kind of dissolve it by taking away the gravity. Yeah, it's really, it, it's an incredible thing. And again, I, I, I want to point out, dosage is important. Same thing with acupuncture. We see images all the time on the internet of people having all these needles in them. Yeah, it looks like a porcupine. It's not the way it works. You put too many needles in people and, and you overtreat them. They get tired. They don't feel good. Their symptoms might get worse because you've actually taken something away from them rather than give them something. So dosage is important. The right needles in the right place and then no more. This is why the pulse is useful. Right? If the pulse feels good to you and then you put in two more needles and the pulse kind of fades away, you want to pull those other needles out. So tell me about your training. How did you get into this world? Chinese medicine? Bad luck. Bad luck? Bad luck. Yeah, I had some health problems. Oh, okay. That I'd had as a, you know, since being a kid. And... Uh, Western medicine didn't help me. I tried all kinds of other alternative medicines. Nothing ever really helped. Can I ask what the ailments were? Chronic dry cough. Okay. Yeah. And very easy getting colds and then hard to get over them. And so you went looking for I did not. A friend of mine badgered me to go get acupuncture. How old were you? Mm, I was in my... Either late 20s or early 30s. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you'd been living life for a while. I, I, yeah, I've been living life. I figured this is just how my body works. Um, anyway, he recommended it. And in the first treatment, that didn't change. But what I found was I was sleeping better. And I found that my digestion hadn't been working as well as I thought it had. Because all of a sudden, my digestion is working great. I hadn't noticed it wasn't working well. Uh, I became less irritable. It was weird. It was very strange. Um, eventually, my lungs also have changed. And I just started using acupuncture as my own health care because it made a difference. And it, and it actually feels really good. And then I got curious about it. And how did that curiosity look? Uh, I started reading books. I asked my acupuncturist, like, I'm curious, how does this work? And she handed me a book, Web That Has No Weaver, title of the book, one of the first books written to, you know, in English about Chinese medicine. Web That Has No Weaver. The Web That Has No Weaver by Ted Kapchuk. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I attempted to read it and could not understand anything they were talking about. It was just a foreign language, except in English. The concepts were just too weird. But I kind of kept at it, and I don't know, I, I, 
think I read some other books as well. Again, didn't really understand them. But I was, I was super curious about it. Like, what is going on here? And uh, at one point, I realized I wanted a, a different job than the job I'd been doing. I had a nice job in high tech, and it was all well and good, but I, I was feeling restless for something different. And uh, this idea of acupuncture kept knocking in the back of my mind. I was not understanding it, but I wanted to. And I knew there was something to it. But I had no idea, you know, what it was, how this stuff worked. And uh, a friend of mine suggested, well, you know, you could go to school and, and see if you could learn more. And if you like it, you could have a new career. And if it turns out that it's not for you, then you've just learned something more that you're interested in. So you can't really lose. And I thought that was good advice. I thought that was really good advice. Was it good advice? Here 25 years later talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so you go to school. How did you choose your school? Were you particular or were you just like, eh? I lived in Seattle. I was going to go to school in Seattle because I, you know, I had a home, a wife, a life. You know, I'm not... I'm not shutting down my life to go learn this. I'm going to learn this while I'm doing the rest of my life. And there were two schools at that point and a third one that was about to open up. And um, I went and interviewed at all of them. And I went and got treated at all of them just, just to get a sense of it and ended up choosing the new school because it, it was very much based on an apprenticeship model. They had you in the clinic from the first day. And the other schools would have you in the clinic sometime in your second year. And what was school like? Did you enjoy what you were learning? Was it a, a renaissance period in your life? I don't know if it was. a. I wouldn't say it was a renaissance period. Although I would say it led to some great adventures. Um and wonderful opportunities that, that maybe gave me a, a, a renaissance period down the road. In the beginning, it was really hard. You're learning a whole different language. Um, and I, I, I can remember one, one moment. This was uh, just a few weeks into it, and some classmates and I are studying herbs. We're learning herbs and acupuncture at the same time, which was unique to this school as well. And there was a moment where I was just at my wit's end, like, uh, you know, I don't know if any of this makes sense, and, and I'm having a hard time understanding it. And I was just in a real, a real snit about it, kind of going on a tirade. And this, and this classmate of mine pulls out a little post-it note, that, like the really little ones, right, because we're taking notes on it on pages, and he just he writes the words on there. Things take time. You just like wrote that in blue ink, right? Pastes it on the book. Right? Calms me down. Like, things take time. And uh, I got home and I, and I took that and I posted it on my wall. And by the time I finished acupuncture school, you could barely see the words that said, things take time, because it had faded. Um, but I think it might have been one of the greatest lessons of school, that things take time. 
and you need some patience, and you need some iteration, and a dose of trust, perhaps? Like, my rational mind is, I don't know if I'm ever going to get this, but there was a part that was, there's something here. I wonder what it is. How does this acupuncture stuff work? And you asked me that question a few minutes ago, and I, I still don't think I have a great answer for it. But I still have that curiosity. And I can see how it works. And I know how to use it to help people. Yeah, there's a certain amount of humility that you'd have to have uh, to be able to practice uh, in this way, where you're like, I know that it works. I've seen that it works. I can see how what I'm doing impacts people. Mm-hmm. But to not have a grasp on a clear answer, for some people, would be very difficult. I would say you can get a grasp on, a, on where to start. Because it's often a process. For sure there's a way to get a grasp on where to start and to be comfortable and confident in that. But where you start and where you end can be two very different things. And, and so quite often in the course of treatment, I'll have an idea. Oh, I think this is what's going on with them. I think this would be helpful. We talk about giving people a diagnosis. Oh, they got this diagnosis, so we treat it like this. I think of it, I think of medicine more as having a hypothesis. Oh, I think it's this. I'm going to treat it as such. And then their reaction to what the herbs I gave them that they took or the acupuncture that they experienced, their reaction to that will give me the feedback to say, yes, it's down this path. Or, uh, maybe it's down this path over here. Or, oh, no, that was completely wrong. We need, we need to reconsider this completely. There's something in Western medicine where um, people feel a lot better when they can name what their disease is. Yeah. So this is the human mind grasping for certainty. And I mean, I see all kinds of weird stuff because I'm an acupuncturist. No one's coming in my door for something simple. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Why would they? They, they probably already use Western medicine or physical therapy or chiropractic or whatever. It's been handled. So they're coming to you as a, as a last resort or as a, as like, a I, I don't know what else. To I do. don't know what else to do. And sometimes they have a diagnosis. But sometimes they don't. It's like I've been through all these tests. I've been to all these doctors. Nobody can find anything wrong. But I have this problem. And sometimes through the you know, lenses and filters we use with Chinese medicine. You know, I can see a way that I might be able to help them. But you're right. People want to know what the diagnosis is. There's a certain wanting to grasp at... There's a deep need for a sense of certainty. And, and I think this is just innate to being a human being. There's a deep need for a sense of certainty. And without it, it's hard for us. Probably why we see so much anxiety these days. The world's very uncertain. And we grasp at we grasp at that. I've had people say, look, I don't I don't know what my diagnosis is. I don't care if it's cancer. I just want to know what it is. Isn't that weird? It is weird. Uh, yeah. Like, I'd even take a wrong answer as long as I believed it over not having an answer. Yes, that too. So yeah, there's something about that human desire for certainty. 
And of course, as practitioners, we all, you know, we want to be helpful to our patients. We want to be certain that what we're doing is going to be useful for them. And for sure, we do the best we can. I think that's true of any doctor of any tradition. The thing about medicine is sometimes you, sometimes you're right. You're on it. Sometimes you're not quite right. So there's a lot of learning to live with uncertainty. Not to say that you're careless, because you don't want to be careless, but like making some room for uncertainty, some possibility, it can be helpful. You um, spent time in Taiwan and also in China mm. s- studying under actual practitioners that are, that are doing this in their mm-hmm. home culture. Tell me about what medicine is like in China and Taiwan. <laughs> um, they're a little bit different. Uh, in China, it's, it's, it's very much more based in hospitals and that kind of thing, at least when I was there. In Taiwan, it's, it's somewhat in hospitals, but a lot more independent practitioners. I mean, this is almost 25 years ago now, so I, I don't know the current status of things. But when I was in Taiwan, you had a lot of herbalists or acupuncturists just working out of a storefront. There were no appointments. You don't get an appointment to see a practitioner. You go, you take a number, you sit and wait until your number is called, and then you see the doctor. And if you go in the morning, you'll, you'll be seen before lunch. And if you go in the afternoon, you'll be seen before dinner, right? They got so many, so many, so many tickets, you know, for the day. And you go get help that day. There's none of this like, oh, I'm going to see the acupuncturist in two weeks because that's when they can see me. You go and you take a number and you hang out and gossip with the people around you. And it's very social kind of thing. Is it seen as an alternative in the same way that it is here? Depends on the people. You know, there's a lot of Western medicine all over the world. It's, you know, it's everywhere. Probably the primary medicine throughout the world is, is Western medicine. Depending on a person's upbringing, depending on, you know, what medicines they've used. For some folks, yeah, they'll go to see the, the Chinese medicine doctor first. Or for certain issues, they'll see the Chinese medicine doctor. Other issues, they'll see the Western doctor. It's... I would say it's more integrated into the society, but it, that doesn't mean that the Chinese and herbal medicine, I'm sorry, Chinese and Western medicine are integrated together in Taiwan. They're not so much integrated together, much more so on the mainland. They got a whole thing where they try to integrate the two. Um, but in Taiwan, when I was there, it was more like two separate systems that people could kind of pick and choose a la carte. Yeah, I've heard the Chinese government making declarations that they want to preserve and protect uh, Chinese medicine because it's uh, it's a part of their heritage, and I think that was uh, shocking to uh, to Americans. You know, I was in diplomacy school at the time, and mm. and the general thought was like they're trying to preserve some form of of uh, like witchcraft or their folk medicine, mm-hmm. which uh, seemed I you know the, the type of thing a graduate student would roll their eyes about, right. Um, again, if you haven't experienced it, it's easy to look at and think it's witchcraft. Um, 
had someone talked to you about cupping back at oh, that point? I would have rolled my eyes. You would have, yeah, we'd be like, that's yeah. ridiculous. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Um, but hey, I, I suspect you've had plenty of experiences in your life where you thought, uh, this thing doesn't hold water, or that's a dumb idea, and then some years later, you're actually doing it. Yeah, there's something truly about the aging that we talked about before where you become far more comfortable being like, I don't know, I don't know, how, at least me. I was a much more certain person before. And, and but also have a strong degree of skepticism of, of a lot of things. Like, I think there's a way that you can balance it as an adult that uh, and maybe it's kind of that idea that there are things that I no longer feel like I have to have an opinion on mm. where I'm like, I don't, what a relief. I don't need to feel strongly about this. I can, I can, you know, if that works for them, great. Whereas when you're younger, there's mm. a definite pull to have an opinion on everything, or at least there was for me. Well, I still have plenty of opinions, I can tell you that. But I can also tell you this, the thing about I don't know, which is damn uncomfortable, especially when you're younger. I think in practicing acupuncture for the time that I have, I've, I've had the great good fortune to become a bit more comfortable with I don't know. And I don't know doesn't mean I don't care, and I don't know certainly doesn't mean I give up. But I don't know is a fantastic place to begin. Because you're, you're like open. What is this? What's here? What am I actually seeing? What am I actually doing? Much like you run these podcasts, right? You bring this, this very delightful sense of inquiry to the conversation. And, and acupuncture very much is a conversation of inquiry. Tell me about that experience of somebody walks in, you know, pick whatever their ailment is. How does that experience go for them? Of not knowing? No, of, of, of visiting you in the clinic. Oh, of visiting they come me. In, they, they don't know what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've yeah. got this issue, and they're like, I don't know. I, I, the other ways didn't work. Yeah. Um, you check their pulse and look at their tongue? Oh, for sure I do. I work different ways at different times. I used to do all my physical assessment before I even talked to them, just to... Uh, just to see what their body says. It's like, I don't even read people, and I still don't do this. I don't read, people fill out that health history form. I never read it before they come in. I'll read it later, but I don't read it when they come in. Because if I read their health history form, <coughs> I'm going to start getting some ideas about what, what might be going on with them. And that's going to close me off to the possibilities of what else might be going on, right? Because now I got my own mind chatter going. You know, I got my own experience, which is helpful. Experience is really helpful, but it can blind you if you're not careful. So sometimes I do. I just do the physical assessment first. But more often these days, I just sit down and talk with people for a while. Who are you? What, like, what brings you by today? I often start with that question. What brings you by today? I want to hear what they've got to say beyond main complaint. Like, what's going on? And, and we just talk a bit, much like we're talking right now. And, of course, the story is going to weave into the problem that they've got or the concern that they have. 
I think it's helpful to first look at people and, and, and just listen to them. Yeah, most people go, I say this all the time, most people go most of their lives having hardly anyone listen to them at all. Maybe, maybe never. And the very act of being heard by somebody that's like there to help you mm. radically changes people. I, I see it every day when I'm doing the, the legacy interviews. Because, oh, I bet you do. Yes, of course. You know, people are telling their story yes. about, about their lives. Yes. And normally when you're yes. telling a story, somebody's waiting for, their, for you to stop talking so they can answer their own question that they've just asked you. But our questions just keep going and going and people get a sense of, oh, this person's really listening to what I'm saying. And you watch how much that changes the demeanor. It, it's powerful. It's powerful. So you and I, it sounds like, work in quite similar ways. Yeah. I mean, and you had said before we got started, you have a master's degree in psychology. And I asked you, you know, what's your orientation? And, and you described it being on family systems. But really what you learned was just to just shut up and let people talk. I find that exactly accurate. Yeah, I, I did learn that there. I have also found over time, so, I mean, there's some real scholarly traditions with Chinese medicine in, in very logical ways of thinking about it and using it. There's a whole scholar tradition that goes back hundreds of years. And you can work that way. There are people who work that way. They work really well. I don't... My brain doesn't work like that so well. I, first of all, it's hard to remember a lot of stuff. And secondly, theory to me is interesting to a point. But beyond that, I just I completely lose interest. Other people can just run with that and, and really work with it. What I have found is that if I am patient enough, and I am thinking in my Chinese medicine way of thinking, right, there... Every response somebody gives to me, I'm, I'm running it through my Chinese medicine filters. But what I'm really listening for is them in some way to say to me, here's the problem I've got and this is what I need. And if you hang out long enough, often enough, people will tell you why they're there and what they need. It's often not the thing that they wrote on their form. But if I can find out why they're there and what they need, then it's very easy to give it to them. Why don't they just know? Because we don't. We're mysteries to ourselves. I don't know why we don't know. Yeah, there. I I agree. I, I saw in your blog, which, by the way, I'll, I'll include a link on it to the show. Your blog is great. It's a whole bunch of little vignettes of you know, something that maybe takes two to three minutes to read and they're mm. fantastic. But you in there mentioned uh, Stephen Prescott's The War of Art ah. talking about resistance. Stephen Pressfield. Pressfield. Yeah. Pressfield. Pressfield. War of Art. Oh my God. Yeah. And, yeah. And uh, and the, the entire idea that there are voices in your head, reading him led me to a whole series of philosophy I knew nothing at all about. Mm. But coming to the conclusion that I am not actually the master of of my mind. Like, there are voices and ideas and concepts and desires that, like, I may not give in to them, but I certainly can't silence them. I certainly don't have the ability to just be like, all right, everybody, we're just listening to me today. And even the very question, who is me, yes. right, is, is one that's hard to know, right? Because there are these voices in your head that say, 
let's go this direction. No, let's take a break and go that direction. Well, the Buddhist would tell you there is no me in the middle of it. It's all a conglomeration. We're made up of mostly not us, including our thoughts. I've spent a little time with meditation. What I've learned through meditation is most of the noise going through my mind is simply noise going through my mind. Most of it's not really worth paying attention to. Some of it is, but most of it isn't. What has meditation been like for you? How do you practice? Mm. Um, mostly just a breath meditation. Focus on the breath. Notice when a thought comes in. It might be 20 minutes before I notice that I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, I'm at the end of meditating. It's like, I've been thinking the whole time. I haven't thought about my breath at all. Mm. But mostly for me at this point, Meditation is just a way of having 20, 25 minutes a day where I just don't argue with the world. Oh, that's a very interesting way to put it, that I just don't argue with the world. I just don't argue with the world. I have thoughts, I just notice I have thoughts. I've got feelings, I notice I have feelings. I have thoughts, oh, they was give me feelings, I notice. Watch, just watch it pass, like watching clouds pass That is pass so good. That is so good. That is exactly like the idea of the resistance, where you're like, oh, that is exactly what I'm doing. I am arguing with the world as my thoughts just, you know, cycle through. Yeah. Or don't, right, or don't. when you're a zombie, and you're just like, you know, going through life, and you're allowing things to to put you in a coma, mm. you know, or, or you have these emotions that allow that that you let just, you know, they're the one in charge and the and ever, all the thoughts go away. But it all really is a, a, an argument with the world. That's a, that's a really interesting point you make, that we can have these emotions and we get entangled with them in such a way that the thoughts go away. That is a way to stop the internal dialogue. You get all caught up in an emotional experience of something. Oh, one of the most painful experiences or realizations that I had because it, it stripped me naked mm. was anger is usually fear or it's usually something that like, I don't want to face oh. that I messed up somewhere yeah. and that, and that like my anger is just a cover for me to point that at somebody else. And when you realize that, when you really realize it, now you are stripped naked because there's a whole bunch of stuff where you're like, if I'm feeling angry, what is the fault that I have to accept that I that I wasn't willing to look at before? Mm. And and fault may be even too strong. Where well, in some cases it might be fault. Yeah. Right? Blame is, you know, it's easy to blame someone else for us being uncomfortable in some way. But the fear piece I think is important because that one's difficult to tolerate and difficult to face. Easy to put anger on top of it and, instead of... I mean, anytime we gaze into fear, man, we're, again, we're looking at the unknown. We're looking at the abyss. That's right. Fear is the unknown, isn't it? It always is. Well, not always. Okay. So, I mean, think of a, a time when you've had, you've been on a great adventure. Like, where are you headed? I don't know. Woohoo! Great. That's very exciting. But the difference between anxiety and the difference between excitement might simply be the story you're telling yourself. <laughs> That's right. That's right. 
I think anxiety is an interesting thing because I think that there is a much closer link between anxiety and depression than most people uh, recognize. Mm. And anxiety makes you feel like uh, you're hyped up and you're and you're worried. And depression, uh, you feel down. But both of them are really around some sense of not knowing what to do next or not knowing where the next, like how things are going to play out. Mm. And so I have observed, at least in my own self, mm-hmm. that I, I can... I could the 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 difference between anxiety and depression is just the story I'm telling myself, um, and and I don't know if it's a choice, but it's certainly they are very very close cousins when they seem like they are direct opposites. That's that's powerful. And having observing that in yourself, recognizing that oh these two things are really closely connected, and I have some influence over it via how I'm responding or what I'm thinking. I would think that uh, the relationship with somebody like you is different than a regular doctor in the sense of the amount of time you spend with people. Yeah, I spend a fair amount of time. Tell me about that time because it's you were describing that somebody already knows what, what they what's wrong with them and what they need. Mm. How do you create the space and have the patience to make that happen are you asking them questions are you sitting quietly How well, this well first of all i create i create the, the time in the space so the first time someone comes to my office I ask them to plan an hour and a half because i you know i need to get to know them a bit and then i want to have time to do a treatment yeah just create that space and then have a conversation People, um, when they're doing the legacy interviews, mm. uh, if they get it for their parents, mm. oftentimes mom or dad is nervous about doing it and and like will be very resistant to the child giving it to them. They'll be like, "Ah, oh, I don't know, I don't. It's not for me." I don't. And what I found is, if you just give a person a chance to describe what they're concerned about, mm. they're all the concerns go away every single time. They go away. And it's like, I'm sure there'll be a time when that's not true, but, but most of the time people just need to put their fears or anxieties into words. And once they do, they realize like, oh, it's actually not that big of a concern. But until you put them into words, it's very difficult to, to deal with them. Sure. And I suspect there are probably some folks as well that realize that it was a big concern and they actually handled it in a reasonably skillful way. Or maybe they didn't handle it in a skillful way, but they found some forgiveness. Oh, yeah. When, you're, when they're actually telling their stories, mm-hmm. certainly. So, I mean, one of my favorite questions, and I, I, this is something I've learned in the last year. One of my favorite questions to ask people, particularly if I don't know what to ask next, mm. is... Oh, what a great question to have. Hang on, I'm going to write this down. Yeah. <laughs> what was the lesson in that? Oh. Right. So somebody's just told you about something that happened to them that was really terrible. Mm. Um, maybe it was their own through their own doing or through nature or through whatever. Mm. And you ask somebody, what was the lesson in that? They most questions you ask people, they have an answer right away. Mm-hmm. If you ask somebody, what was the lesson in that? They'll pause because they're mm-hmm. not asked that question very often. Mm-hmm. And they'll think for a little bit. And oftentimes what comes out next is truly authentic. And you're having a real conversation at that point. Yeah. But you can ask that about just about anything and you'll find an interesting answer. 
Yeah. Do you have- there's, um, there's another guy that I've listened to from time to time. Do you know who... Um, oh, I can see his face. Uh, Jerry Colonna. You familiar with Jerry Colonna? Jerry Colonna helped to bring us the internet back in the late 90s. He was a venture capitalist who funded a lot of the startups back then that then imploded. And so that was hard for him. He ended up depressed, suicidal. He'd made all this money. He still had a lot of it, too, because he was a venture capitalist. But it was, it was <coughs> hard for him that so many companies that, that he'd been funding and so many things had been working on all, you know, just went to pieces. And uh, he ended up being suicidal. He told his therapist, he said, you know, put me in a, put me in a hospital because, you know, I, I'm in trouble. And his therapist said, Jerry, you're rich. Go to Canyon Ranch. <laughs> right? Go do some work which he did, and, and now he's this, like, rock star coach to entrepreneurs and startup people. And he's got this very Buddhist bent. I mean, he went through a real transformation. And one of the questions that uh, he invites people into is, how are you complicit in your own suffering? Okay. How are you complicit in this mess that you're in? Not in a finger-wagging, you're a bad dog. What have you done? What have you gotten out of this? That's actually not helpful to you, and you're realizing how it's not helpful. That's a very good one. Oh, it's hard. For self-reflection, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it is a good question, but it's a... You know, it's one I ask myself on a regular basis. Sometimes I just don't want to answer the question. Or, yeah, even bring it up. Like, let's, let's, we'll bring it up later. Bring it up later. It, 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 it's a helpful question. It, it's part of that, what did you learn? Like, actually, maybe what did you learn is the other side of that. You know, how are you complicit in your own suffering? How are you, how am I complicit in the troubles that I've, that I'm facing at this moment? Gives us another place to stand, you know. Again, with some uncertainty and ideally some curiosity. When you think about that applied to medicine, mm. how does that apply to an individual? Would you would you ask someone coming in with an ailment that question? I would certainly not ask them that in the beginning. <laughs> okay. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. That 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 is a question that maybe would come up. Somewhere down the way is, is they're getting a glimpse of, oh, I think I see how I have a hand in, in my troubles. That would be a fine time to ask Yeah, that after question. trust has been built. Well, not only after trust has been built, but as, as, as you begin to see that they're already asking themselves that question. I think that's an okay time for a question like that, but not before. So you've been practicing Chinese medicine for 25 years, 25 years. What does the future hold for you in in this curiosity that you've found yourself pulled towards? I don't, yeah, that's a good question. 
for the near term, I mean, continue to do what I do because I enjoy it and it's helpful to people. And I'm always learning something new. I mean, there's always something new to learn. And, and that for me is just an absolute delight. So there's that. Long term, I mean, it's hard to know. I've got a, a teacher of mine who retired a year ago. We've got this kind of uh, archetype of an old Chinese doctor that they just practice until they die, right? But this teacher of mine retired a year ago. And he said he just woke up one morning and went, I'm done with this phase. After 50 years, he was done. So will I wake up one morning and go, oh, I'm done with this phase? I, I don't know. Um, I suspect if I do, there'll be something else that's got my attention that I'm going to enjoy following. But the, the great joy of, of doing the work that I do is there's never a dull day. I never know what's going to show up. I don't even know how I'm going to treat a person until I've had a chance to sit with them. There, there's, there's no proto... I mean, you can practice in a protocolized fashion, but you don't have to. It's a, it's a very... This is the beauty of Chinese medicine for me, and I think one of the reasons why people enjoy it. It's a handcrafted, individualized, individualized medicine. One size does not fit all. We have this idea in Western medicine, oh, you have high cholesterol, everybody gets a statin. But with Chinese medicine, and, and it's so weird that this would come out of Chinese culture. Asian cultures in general are these very homogenous, very collective, very group-oriented type cultures. Here we are in the West, we're like wildly individualistic. But when you look at Western medicine, it's like, how do we hit the top of the bell curve in these first two standard deviations? Medicine for the masses. And it's helpful, right? Like, you know, public health measures are great and have eradicated a lot of disease. There's a place for it. The thing that's curious about Chinese medicine to me is you have this culture of the collective that has come up with an absolutely fantastically individualized medicine. For each person that is right you you contrast that with uh, the data-driven medicine which is all about averages and how many people work that's yeah. a, that's very insightful yeah. it's cur it's just curious i don't i don't know it's why a duality it's you wouldn't expect right it's a duality you would not expect right in which i mean i suspect this is why you enjoy your work so much i know it's one of the reasons i enjoy mine because Unexpected things show up all the time. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is ask. That's, all you got to do is thing. ask. All you have to do is ask. <laughs> well, um, if people wanted to learn more about your clinic or read your blog, where would they go? They would go to uh, com. I'm not going to spell it. Just put it on the show notes. They'll find out about me there. I've got a podcast, but it, it's for um, practitioners of Chinese medicine, so it's it's pretty technical, but there are some episodes that are more on the philosophical bend. That's geological.com. Again, I'm not going to spell it. You can put it on the show notes. Great. Well, man, this has been great. I'll have you back on. I want to talk about uh, sugar and all kinds of other stuff. So we'll, we'll have you back on. That'd Thank be you. a delight. All right. Michael thanks Max, for your time. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Ah!